Well, good morning, everybody, once again, and we want to welcome you to church, and I want to say again, I want to echo, using that churchy word, echo, what Paul prayed, thankful for our music team and our tech team. It's good to be able to not let the gates of hell prevail against God's church, so COVID or lockdowns or restrictions, this is not what we would choose, it's not what we like, but we can still find joy and peace and contentment and even a sense of courage and calm in the midst of circumstances that we don't like. Well, as is often the case for me anyway, it feels like I have a long way to go and a short time to get there. So I'm going to invite you right away to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 16 with me this morning. John chapter 16, I'm going to read again verses 4 to 15, but likely today we're going to focus on verses 8 to 11. We'll see how time goes. This is such a rich passage, and I'll set it up in just a minute. But I do want to read for us God's Word. I remember a guy named Ron Blue, who was the uh, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I had the joy of listening to him preach and teach many times. And Brother Paul has prayed so well for us, and he used to say, let us talk to the author before we look to his book. Well, Paul has talked to the author, God himself on our behalf, So now let's look to his book, John chapter 16, beginning to read in verse 4 this morning. Jesus says to those 11 disciples, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may may remember that I told them to you. So that's finishing the thought of actually chapter 15, 18 through the end of that particular part of chapter 16, verse 4. Now he changes his thought. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, Jesus says, because I was with you. But now, now I am going to him, that's God who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has now filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. And this was our big thought from last Sunday. It is to your advantage Jesus says that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the comforter, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world. And this is what he will do. He will convict the world concerning sin and concerning righteousness and concerning judgment. Verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. And then verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And then Jesus, if you notice, the natural phrasing of this passage, it changes theme again. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, now watch these things that the Spirit is going to do. Number one, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And finally, in verse 14, he will glorify me. Why? For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And then here's his summary statement. All that the Father has given is mine. Therefore, I said, he, the Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, we have read God's word together. We have turned to John chapter 16. 
And I want to remind you just a little bit of a nuance of this thing we call the gospel according to John. The gospel of John is actually 21 chapters in your Bible if you look at it. It has an introduction, which is John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. Then there's the body of the gospel, which we're into now. And many people believe it's actually divided into two parts. Chapters really 118 to 11 is the book of signs. That's where those seven signs that John picks out are there. And then verse chapters 12 to 20 is what's called the book of suffering. Okay, or, or the, the, the private words of Jesus with his disciples. And then you have this purpose statement in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. And then there's John chapter 21. And some could argue, if you read your gospel of John, that John chapter 21 actually includes some of the most incredible stuff. And it's a bit weird because John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31 is clearly how John is summarizing his gospel, letting you know why he wrote, and then he writes a whole other chapter. And it's really good stuff. And I wonder if this is a nuance of John because he wants to remind us of a theme. If you remember all the way back in John chapter 2, the very first sign that John chooses and what we know as the first miracle Jesus performs. You remember what it was? It was when he turned water into wine. And if you remember in the dynamics of that, the master of the feast goes to him. He's like the main chef. He would have been the guy, the main caterer on behalf of the bridegroom. So when he tastes this wine that Jesus had turned water into wine, he goes to the bridegroom, and this is what he says. Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk it freely, then the poor wine. But, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now, I don't want to go back and rehash that chapter. There's a good reason that John chose this sign as it relates to Jesus and what we're to conclude about Christ as the Messiah. That's why he wrote John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, right? And there are many other things that Jesus did which are not recorded in the Gospel of John, but he chose these seven for a specific reason, that you and I, you and I, wherever we are on this stormy January morning of 2022, would know that Jesus is the Christ, that's the conclusion, Jesus is Christ, and that by believing, now here, you ready for this? We might have life in his name. So this is what John wants you and I to get. But I wonder, I really do wonder, if this idea of serving the best last is something that John also wants us to see as a recurring theme throughout his entire gospel. Because John chapter 13 to 16, this farewell discourse of Jesus, you could actually make the case that John 16, 5 to 15, is the best stuff that Jesus says to his disciples. It's almost like he deliberately saves the best for last. All the way back in John chapter 13, Jesus has humbled himself before them. He's washed their feet. He took off his outer garments. He really humiliated himself by washing the feet of his disciples. He then had the Last Supper with them where he instituted what is now what we call the Lord's Supper. It's the way of remembering him. He told them the truth. Bluntly and graphically, I'm leaving you. I will betray, be betrayed by one of you and you are all weak and you're all going to abandon me. And that answer confused the disciples. So in chapters 14 and 15, he answers their confused questions. And as we saw last week, we, are, we, we saw that even the disciples are somewhat self-centered and self-serving in their questions. 
Jesus commanded them not once, not twice, but three times to love each other. And then he promised them the Holy Spirit and even told them how the world will react to them. And yet, these 11 guys are scared and confused. They're self-consumed. I find it ironic that in John 14, 1, Jesus told them, let not your heart be troubled. So Jesus told them to have peace, and yet their hearts are troubled. They still are without peace. And the question begs to be answered, why? But let me ask everybody, Calvary Baptist family and visitors, all the way up in Goose Bay, Labrador, if you're tuning in at Northern Cross, and anyone from Kilbride Community Church or downtown, different folks from different parts of our city, there's people watching from different parts of Newfoundland across this country and indeed around the world. Are we any different today than these 11 guys? See if I can summarize this for you. On January the 16th of 2022, on planet Earth, as that old comedy said, the third rock from the sun, we live in the most quote-unquote enlightened age in human history. We have access to more information than ever before. We have more technology. We have more health care. We have more money. We have more access to travel. In fact, if we're being completely honest, there's little left to discover about our world. If you actually know anything about pop culture, really only the depths of the oceans and space itself seems to captivate us anymore. We can be anywhere on planet Earth in 24 hours. We can know anything that's going on on planet Earth within seconds. We even now have, for the ultra-rich, hop on a very weird-looking plane-type rocket and you can go to space for 30 to 90 seconds if you've got, I don't know what it is, 50 or 60 million dollars. And we've got access to each other. Between Facebook or Zoom or Ring or phone or text or email. And then you've got your statuses with Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat. And let's be honest, what do we have now? Thousands of channels on television and streaming. We have instant access to entertainment and to food, even to medicine. We can borrow money. We've got probably what? The biggest social net in the world in our country called Canada. We have sports and shelters. We've got hotlines for just about everything. You can find a date on your phone, buy a car on your phone, book a holiday on your phone, pay a bill on your phone, and let the whole world know if you're having a bad day on your phone. So shouldn't this be as close to utopia as we can get? And then there's the church. We've got more beautiful buildings than we've ever had in our history. And we can rent just about anywhere. Even though we've had COVID and restrictions and everything, we now have the access to live stream. We can upload sermons or download them. We've got websites and, and apps for our phones. We've got access to Bibles and books like never before in all of church history. The church today would be the envy of these 11 men. We know about how God is working all around the world. We see God working in countries where there's persecution. We can know and hear from our missionaries in real time because they can go FaceTime live if they want to. 
We can celebrate and know about churches anywhere at any time. We are richer than ever before as Christians and as churches. And for all of the cultural drift, we still enjoy many advantages. And you would think that in January of 2022, of all people on planet Earth, professing Christians would be the most happy, the most peaceful, the most satisfied, the most thankful, loving, faithful, knowledgeable people. And yet, the world is more chaotic and neurotic than ever. Mental illness is skyrocketing. Hate and division is everywhere. Selfishness and greed reigns. Everyone is looking out for themselves. And we're more confused, suspicious, and hurting than even I remember. We're lonely and actually facing a pandemic of friendlessness. The world and culture is tired and lacks sleep. And yet, ask everybody if they feel healthy and they'll tell you no. And yet, we have more gyms and parks and playgrounds than ever before. And for all of the spas and all of the me days that we take, it seems like the world is more stressed and anxious and depressed. And despite Bell's Let's Talk, And those I'm listening commercials and for all the how are you doing questions we ask each other, it doesn't seem to slow down the hurt or the hate, the impatience of our world, does it? And tragically, the church is no different. Seems like we're all afraid. It breaks my heart that live in real time, I see the church of Canada, the United States, fighting about theology even though very few people I meet know what they believe or why they believe it, but they know how to fight. Church splits and churches slowly dying seems to be far more common than things like prayer, revival, and missions. And churches and people in churches are tired. It's like we're weary in well-doing. There's more arguing and name-calling and fussing over our likes and our preferences and our traditions and our denominational affiliations, and yet we claim the whole time to know Jesus, to know that heaven is our home, to know that we're sinners saved by grace, to know Jesus is our Savior, to know, to know, to know, and yet if you are honest and we're able to have an honest conversation, you'll soon discover this about me and you and us. We seem fearful and discouraged. We are praying less, or worse, we're prayerless. We're seeing more and more folks who either don't know God, all the while singing about Him, or folks angry and bitter, folks who cling to Jesus like a cross on a necklace, rather than cling to Jesus like He's the breath of life who gives us what John talks about in John chapter 20, that we might have life and have it more abundantly. So what's going on in the world, and why are Christians struggling? What does all this mean? Where should we look? To whom should we turn? Why is all this happening? (laughs) Well, I'm glad you asked. And since none of you are here, I can pretend you all asked. Because John chapter 15, verses 6 to 15, tell us the answer. After all I've said in this introduction, I want you and me, for us, believe it or not, for all of that shocking negativity, I actually want to invite you to hope. 
I want us to know peace and have joy and have confidence. I want us not to just smile and sing these songs, but actually sing these songs in our heart Monday to Saturday as we interact with each other, to have a confidence, but actually live life with a power and understanding of our world to know ourselves. I am desperate for myself and us, for our network of churches, that we would know God, that we would know what's going on in the world. Calvary family, that we, we of all people would know the truth that passes all understanding, not know the truth to be proud of being right, but to be humbled and amazed by the grace of Jesus Christ, that we would be able to offer answers to those who are searching and those who are hurting and those who are scared. You see, one of the reasons we struggle is because we read the Bible, but we don't relate to it. We read about a passage like John chapter 16, verses 5 to 15, and we know there's 11 disciples there, but we don't see or feel or sense what they're dealing with, and we deal with it as well. Take a trip with me. Let's go back in time. These 11 guys that are standing there listening to Jesus, remember those 11 men had jobs and bills and relationship dynamics just like you and I. For them, they would gather on the Sabbath because they hadn't instituted that first day of the week worship like we do. So if that was a Saturday, they were thinking about what they were going to do Sunday morning when they had to go to work or how they were going to pay the bills. They lived in a world that was just as chaotic and just as confused as ours. Their world was just as neurotic and self-absorbed. These men, some of them had marriages and families, and some of them were single and lonely. They wondered about food and money and stuff. These 11 guys wondered about future and health and death, and they wanted, just like we do, to know God. And many of them had given up things and put careers on hold to follow Jesus. They had changed careers but in following Jesus, like everybody, of, one of us in 2022, when they went to Jesus, they also brought their junk. They brought their presuppositions. They brought their experiences. They brought their past. They brought their religious upbringing. They took their hurts and hopes and dreams, and they brought it all to Jesus just like we do. And they too had parents to deal with and sibling rivalries to wade through. They had reputations to think about and neighbors they had to live next to. I want you to know, one and all, when you read your Bible and you read about the men and women in the Bible, they are just like you and me, reacting to Jesus like you and me. And yet in this passage, Jesus will say this. He looks at them and he now, through his spirit, says to you and I, yes, I'm leaving, and that's to your advantage. You think you're losing me, Jesus says. You've asked, none of you asked, where am I going? They asked where he was going in a selfish way back in chapter 14, but they don't, know what, don't want to know what the big plan is because they already have a plan in their minds. He says, I'm going to tell you something. When I leave, you're going to get more of me than you've ever had. Oh, and by the way, guys, you wonder about your future? After I go and do this, I'll explain how I'm securing your future, and you'll even know what your future is. 
you wonder how to deal with life. I'll explain it to you. Not only that, I'm going to empower you and guide you and be with you as you walk every step of your life. Friends, you'll never be alone. You'll always have access to Jesus. Oh, and Jesus says, I'm going to use you. I'll even use you to show the whole world who I am. And in this passage, if you step back, Jesus says, guys, I'm going to heal you and transform you, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to walk through your ups and your downs, and you'll know you can come to me, and you'll never fear rejection. You'll never be afraid that grace isn't there for you. Oh, and by the way, because my spirit's coming, you won't have to hide anymore. You won't have to make excuses for your sin, and you won't have to pretend You can stop faking it. Stop trying to convince everybody you're okay or that you're in control or that none of this stuff bothers you. You'll know how to be brave even when you're weak. You'll learn how to love even when you're hated. And when my spirit comes, you're going to experience power and know the ability to stand and speak for me. You'll make sense of setbacks and hardships. You'll be able to rejoice even as you grieve. You'll be thankful even when you suffer, and you'll be content even when things don't go according to plan. (laughs) That's what's in this passage. That's why these verses mean so, so much, and it's why I'm pleading with you and myself and us to listen to John 16 and apply and practice these verses, because these verses tell us how advantageous it is to live life with the Holy Spirit. Our first Sunday in January talked about what life is like with Jesus. We're going to face hatred and persecution and opposition and apathy and all of that. But now Jesus says, here's what life with the Spirit is going to be like. And last week I focused how, just how advantageous it is. And today I want to focus on this. What is life with the Holy Spirit like from the world's point of view? Because it's there in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. Jesus is going to outline how the Spirit of God will be to the world's, ready for this, advantage. (laughs) That's right, I said it. It was advantageous for the world for Jesus Christ to die, be buried, rise again, and ascend, and send his Holy Spirit. Why was that advantageous for the world? Because now they would understand Sin, righteousness, and judgment. I want you to get this. Here's what Jesus is telling his disciples. Here's what you and I need to know in the chaos of 2022. The presence of God in the people of God causes the holiness of God to not only be known, but felt. And this is my challenge to you and I as Christians. We are the people of God. Are we overwhelmed with the presence of God and in so much that we, the people of God, exercise, live out the presence of God in our lives so we know it and we feel it, here's what happens to our world. This is why these words exist. Morality, guilt, and conscience. Friends, these are not bad words. 
A sense of morality is a gift from God. A sense of guilt is a gift from God. A sense of a guilty conscience is a gift from God. Now, Satan has messed it all up. And instead, we see and wrestle with and we see the world traumatized by things like shame and weight and weariness and confusion and denial. Those are bad words. They're meant to be deceiving and imprisoning and enslaving this morning, Debbie was playing all kinds of music, and one of the songs she played over and over again this morning is, is that Zach Williams, I'm no longer a slave to fear, because I am a friend of God. And that's only possible because the Holy Spirit comes to the world. Now, believe it or not, I don't think I actually have to convince you and I of this. I think we actually know this. Research and experience today will show that the vast majority of people in St. John's, in Newfoundland and Labrador, believe that they're basically good. Let's call a spade a spade. Let's be honest. Most people today in Canada believe that God is genuinely, generally pleased with them. Now, people would not say they're perfect. I've never, I, I don't think I've ever met a human being that said they're perfect. Most of the people I meet say, look, I'm not perfect, but I'm a pretty good person. And most people I meet think they've got some kind of hope for heaven when they die if they believe in a heaven. But I can tell you that despite everybody's efforts to convince me and often me myself that we're basically good and God is generally pleased with us, it seems fascinating that the reason we play the music loud and turn the lights down low, the reason that we are so obsessed with being busy, the reason we have made an Olympic sport out of rationalizing, the reason we drink or work or inject or pop pills and party and want to laugh, and the reason why we try super hard to console ourselves and those around us is because deep in our heart there's this nagging. And believe it or not, that's God at work in the world. And it's a gift. Jesus said back in John chapter 3 that God sent his son because he loved the world. And he sent his son to make himself known to the world. And he sent his son to make, make him known to the world so that Jesus could let us know what's wrong with the world. Last week, Jesus reminded the disciples that the world who rejects this will act a certain way. But here's the advantage. When the Holy Spirit comes, it makes it possible for dead people to respond to the life-giving message of the gospel. You see, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He didn't even come to make basically good people better. He came to make dead people alive. And I know it's true. For even now, as some of you are listening to this, there are some of you out there right now, there's some of the people, even from the music team and the tech team, sitting right here listening to me preach, and they're hearing this, and everybody will give me a variety of responses, and it's not me, it's the Word of God. Some will hear this and be angry. What gives you the right to say these things? They'll be angry at me for claiming what it means. Some will feel sorry for me. Some people are going to watch this and go, look at that poor deluded dude. That poor church, this is what religion does to the world. It handicaps the mentally weak and all this kind of stuff. Many people out there will not even bother. They'll flick by. Oh, whatever. Same old, same old. I've heard this, seen this before. But some 
will be curious. Some have heard this before, will all of a sudden take notice. Some have grown up in church, but they're angry or they're bitter or they've, they've been hurt, will all of a sudden hear this and now feel a tinge of uneasiness. You'll start to remember what you've heard. You'll start to ask, well, what if or what about? For some of you, these words will draw. You see, that's called conviction. And my friends, conviction is a gift of God. And I'm not here as a salesman. I'm telling you this as a client because I've witnessed this. My mom and dad came to Christ two weeks apart when I was five years old. And even prior to that, they were church-going people. So I've been in church since I was born. But from five, all through my teen years, my parents brought me to church. I went to Sunday school. I went to every kind of kids club. I went to youth group. I went to a Christian school. Every time the lights were on, every special meeting, I went to it. I've been around it. I have been taught the Bible. I have memorized the Bible. I did all of these things. And yet I didn't know Jesus. I was religious, but lost. And when I was 21 years old in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, just married to Debbie in June of 1993, I was angry. I had one foot in the world and one foot in the church. I was uneasy, uneasy with my life. I was angry and frustrated. I found all the problems with church. Church was simply the country club kind of that I was raised in. And I knew that Sunday was the next day because it was a Saturday night and I wanted to make my mom happy. And I wanted to ease my conscience because I was mad. Debbie and I couldn't find anything to watch on a cable television, and I I thought I was paying way too much for it, and I threw myself on my bed, and I knew that tomorrow was Sunday, and I didn't know what to do, and so to simply quiet my mother when she called and to ease my conscience, I read a spiritual book, and then I picked up my Bible. And I read a passage I have read literally hundreds of times, James chapter 1. And in that passage where James says that the one who hears the word but is not a doer is like the person who looks in a mirror and sees all that's wrong with him and then leaves and forgets what he saw. And it was literally like my entire life flashed before my eyes and every altar call and every sermon and every chapel in school and every camp I went to and everything all flat. And I realized how many times I just shoved all that conviction down. And for some reason, the, the words leaped off the page. And that time, after hundreds of time, God spoke to me. Jesus' love for me became clear. The Holy Spirit breathed life into my heart and mind. And I not only wanted God, I had to have him. And I couldn't get off that bed till I knew I had him. So I'm not here to tell you this. I'm here to testify that this is real. This is what Jesus says the Spirit of God does. He convicts us of our sin. And maybe there's some of you out there who've been in church all your lives and you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been in church all your life. You know the songs. You know the games. You know how to pray. You know how to fake it like anybody. And I was an expert at it. And then God convicted me. Because when Jesus says in our passage that I will convict them of sin, that word convict means two things, negative and positive. It means to reprove, but it also means to convince. It means to reprove and to convince. 
So Jesus, I believe, is the focus on this is positive. He's telling them. He's already told them the, the negative in chapter 15, verse 18. Now he's telling them the positive. Listen, my spirit will come and convince sinners of sin. Do you remember what Jesus said back in John 3, 17? See, we all know 16. But he said, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that they would know me. And he says, to anyone who believes me, they'll be forgiven. But if you reject me, you're condemned already. So Jesus sends his spirit to convince us. This farewell passage to the disciples is really a pre-game prep talk to the Great Commission. Jesus is telling them all that rejection, all that opposition you've seen and tasted and experienced. Oh boys, after I go, I will actually come to you in the world in a way that changes everything. And that's why after the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 1 and comes upon them with those tongues of cloven fire and they all speak in tongues and preach the very first sermon that, that, that Peter preaches, all everything changes. The Holy Spirit convicts the world in two senses. First, like a prosecuting attorney, you're guilty. But second, in human conscience that says, I paid for it. You can find forgiveness. When Peter preached that sermon in Acts chapter 1 and 2, and he actually said this, this is not a very friendly sermon. He says to this crowd, you crucified and killed Jesus. As J.M. Boyce says, had Peter preached that message even a day earlier, the only result would have been his abuse and arrest. No one would have tolerated what he said. But now that the Holy Spirit of God is now in the world through the presence of believers, now they heard it and they were cut to their heart and they were convicted and they appealed to Peter and said, brothers, what shall we do? And this is why it's better for us that Jesus departed from he to heaven and he sent his Holy Spirit who performs the work of conviction that is essential to any sinner's salvation. But there's more. He not only convicts of sin, but he also convicts of righteousness. Basically, the Spirit of God will let the world know you can't be good enough and you'll never be bad enough. Either way, you need me. When I was studying for this, J.M. Boyce talks about a prison camp in World War II where allied soldiers were held. And the, the story goes that the men could receive care packages. They were able to correspond by mail with their families. And the families actually sent care packages to this prison camp. And over the time, they sent, they sent things like chocolates and food and, and, of course, cigarettes and things like that, but even board games to help the prisoners occupy their time. And one of the most popular board games that many of the prisoners got was Monopoly. But it turned out that the camp decided to use the Monopoly money as currency for the prison. So they used the Monopoly money as a way that men could buy and sell things and trade things together. And just like the game, it ended up that only a few of the men had most of the money. A diary of one of these prisoners was found, and J.M. Boyce talks about the fact that one man wrote how excited he was to have accumulated so much Monopoly money, and he really hoped his wife and family would be proud of him. And he actually stuffed all the Monopoly money in a bag and was going to bring it with him back home to show his family how well he did in prison. And he writes in his diary that it hit him on the plane ride home. I have a bag of worthless money. 
I can't bring this home. I can't deposit it anywhere. I can't buy anything with it. Boyce concludes, human righteousness is like monopoly money. It has its use in the game we call life, but it is not real currency and it is not, does not work in God's domain. And so Jesus sends his spirit to show us that our righteousness isn't enough. That's why Isaiah says what he does in Isaiah 64, a verse that many Christians know, right? Even our righteousness are as filthy rags. But we often stop reading. He goes on to say, we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, O God, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But then the Holy Spirit comes and tells a sinner, Jesus died for you. Jesus lived the life that you and I could never live. That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. I didn't come to put the law aside. I came to fulfill it on your behalf. This is the gospel truth that those convicted of sin need and long to hear. Calvary, downtown, Kilbride, Northern Cross, we need to tell this island there is forgiveness for sinners and righteousness in Jesus Christ. Jesus taught everybody, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Robert Murray McShane said that the same Spirit of God that leads weary souls to Christ stands and he points not only to the coming judgment but also to the coming forgiveness. He points not only to the threatening storm but also to the strong tower of Jesus. He directs the sinner eyes not only to his sin and misery but also to the bleeding, dying, rising, risen Savior who says, come to me. The Spirit convicts of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Ms. McConnell, over in Scotland and working in the schemes, if you ever go over and do a vision trip, he'll tell you this. The number one question he gets asked among the poor is this. Mez, am I going to hell? And how can I not go? Tragically, though, that is not the question of the middle class and the rich, is it? Mostly, the middle class doesn't believe they're going to hell. And they really want me to tell them things like, tell me I'm going to heaven, not will I go to hell. But the Spirit of God comes to convict of sin and righteousness and of judgment, and the Spirit of God will tell the rich, you will and deserve to go to hell. And he tells the poor, you will and deserve to go to, the poor, go to hell, but you will and deserve it. And yet the gospel says, the whole world, you don't have to because Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid for all your sin, and Jesus paid for all your monopoly money. You see, look at the passage again. Look at what he says at the end of it. He says, Satan has been defeated. The Satan of this world, he's judging Satan. See, Satan is the great liar, the great deceiver. He spends so much time telling us, he tells one half of the world, you are worthy. And the other half, you're not worthy. But this is where Genesis 3.15 and John 3.16 collide. Jesus is teaching that his overthrow of the devil, both by dying to destroy the power of sin and by raising from the dead to bring new life and heavenly life into the world, has proved that it is a judgment on evil. 
That's why Paul says in Colossians, he, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. How did he do it? By triumphing over them in him. Richard Phillips says this, Christ saw his death and resurrection as the judgment of Satan. And by his falsehood, which is exposed and his demise achieved and in the fall of Satan's reign, we all see the power of sin and darkness and how it's fallen. Therefore, if you doubt that there was a judgment awaiting all evil in this world, except accepting the, the sin that has already been judged on Christ's cross, then his defeat of Satan would have been folly. It is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to work this conviction. And I love this. Skip Ryan says, in the triumph of Christ, the false one, the liar, the accuser. Now, listen, young adults, okay, who wants to hold us up to false standards of judgment. So, how do you evaluate yourself? By your appearance? By your wealth? By your standard of living? By your success? By your followers on Instagram or Twitter or Snapchat? by your likes on Facebook, by the opportunities you have, the clubs to which you belong, the grades or the resume that you have, the accuser lies and tells us to see ourselves in this way. And Jesus comes and says, no, liar, liar, pence on fire. You can't be bad enough that Jesus can't save you, and you'll never be good enough that you don't need saving from judgment. And so church, listen to me, verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, summarized like this. While on earth, Jesus accomplishes our salvation. And how does he do it? He's going to go. He's going to leave them. And he's going to die for our sins. And then he'll be buried. And three days later, he'll rise again. And 40 days after that, he'll ascend to glory. And he'll send his Holy Spirit who applies what Jesus achieved to everyone who has this gift of faith. And next week, we're going to see what life with the Holy Spirit is like for the church. But I want to ask you this morning as we conclude. I want to ask you a couple of questions. Church, I want to ask you this. Do you see in this passage how we're called to be witnesses for Christ? You see, I want you to realize something. We can't save. I know it's a hot-button issue right now, but it is impossible to convert anybody. And we are not called to conversion. We are called and commissioned and commanded to be voices for God's Spirit. Justin Benji said, you believed the gospel not because you were smarter, not because you were righteous, not because you were privileged, but because God intervened with his grace and opened your heart to obey his word and embrace Christ and believe. But Jesus did tell us that when the spirit comes to us, why? Because he says, it is not good for you. It is, sorry, it is, it is for your good that I'm going away, verse 7 and 8. Because unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes to you, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. This means, church, listen, that the Lord is sending the Holy Spirit to believers and that he is at work through them and in them and that convicts the world. So you want a theme for 2022 as a church? This should be the year that we proclaim and live out our faith. 
Stop bickering and clutching and scampering around. We need to do this because Jesus told us to. We need to do this because the Spirit of God empowers us to. The Father will give a reward to the obedience of His Son, and we do it all from love. It's never been about conversion. It's always been about testimony. And yet if we read the Bible, every human response to the gospel recorded in the book of Acts was through the agency of someone who was already saved. In other words, it was the testimony and the truth from someone who experienced love and forgiveness and mercy and grace and new life. So let me ask you this. When was the last time you testified of how God changed you? Maybe instead of us screaming at the world and arguing with each other, playing games at the foot of the cross, why don't we make it our mode of this year to show the world how Jesus has changed us? And we will experience rejection, but it will draw men and women to Christ. And we'll be able to say, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. But watch this. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The most astonishing news is that Jesus rose from the dead. His physical body was resurrected. And i got to be honest, to me, it's the most comforting reality in the midst of any trial. He really died. He really rose. He's really coming back. He's really up in heaven right now. He is my, really my advocate. He really intercedes for me. So what do I have left to fear? If this is true, I can go to him. So church... Let's not give in to the chaotic neuroticism and individualism of the world. And as we're going to see next week, when the Holy Spirit is given to the church, it means that we find out just how important the Bible and prayer is. And my contention is that in this passage, he saves the best for last, verses 12 to 15, which shows every Christian that we no longer have to be afraid and a slave to fear. But until we start to see and experience the Holy Spirit in our lives so that we want to tell others about Him and point others to Him, what are we doing? What is the point? Just to give you previews, I read a study of Canada that was done in 2014, so it's already seven years old. And according to that study, only 14% of Canadians read the Bible once a month. And amongst those who claim that the Bible is actually legitimately the Word of God, the most they anyone polled said is they read the Bible several times a week. A week. And we wonder why. We are afraid. And why we're not moving forward. And why churches are splitting and shrinking. And why we fight with each other. And why we don't know how to live with peace and contentment and joy in the face of COVID-19 and vaccine passports and all of these types of things. 
the Bible tells us that we are to have joy. Jesus, John said that if you know Jesus, you have life and have it more abundantly. Do you? And for any man and woman out there, and I know someone has heard this, and this is not me playing a game, because I grew up in all that religious altar call stuff, so this is not what I'm trying to get at. But I do know this, the Bible has been sung about, it's been read, it's been prayed about, and I know there are men and women out there, and you have felt something. What are you going to do? Is this just going to be another Sunday that you look in the mirror and then walk away? Is this going to be another Sunday when you just shove it down and not deal with what God's Spirit has convicted you of? Because Christians, let me tell you, if you get used to doing that, don't be shocked then when the crisis comes and you don't know what to do or you're reacting in a very worldly way. And for those of you that are hurting, distraught, searching, cynical, wherever you are, if you get in the habit of not responding to this call, this, this, this drawing in of God through His Word and His Spirit, Don't be shocked when nothing changes. So I plead with you to pick up your Bibles and read it. I plead with you to pray to God and be honest. I plead with you to get in community. I plead with Christians, let's stop playing games. And if God tarries next week, regardless of what the regulations are, whether we do this online, whether there's 50 of us here or 100 of us here, whoever of us is here, we are going to look at verses 11 through 15, and we're going to discover that God gives Christians the answers to everything that we need to live this life in 2022. But it starts with, are you and I going to be testimonies and witnesses? Because it's to the advantage of the world. That men and women will come to Christ by the presence of God in the people of God who show the world the holiness of God. And they can find forgiveness of sin, enjoy the righteousness of Christ, and know that judgment is nothing they have to fear ever again. I don't know about you, but that's a game plan for 2022. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Lord, uh, it's been crazy weather. Yesterday it was all green grass, and this morning there's these snow squalls, and the winds are whipping around. And Lord, that is no more different than what we experience in life. We watch the news, and one day it's COVID is being defeated, and the next day it's COVID is defeating us. One day the market is good, the next day the market is down. One day oil is up, and gas is up, and the next day oil is down, and gas is down. Lord, we hear about wars and volcanic, volcanic eruptions, and we know that we are in uncertain times. And in the midst of that, there's 8 billion human beings that need to know the love of God. To need to know that, Father, you sent your Son not to condemn, but to share the good news that sin has been paid for. That we can know freedom that we don't have to be a slave to fear or sin anymore. So Lord, as we close in song, as we bring this live stream to an end, whether people are downtown or in Kilbride or different parts of St. John's, whether up in Goose Bay or across this island or indeed around the world, I pray that men and women right now would feel led by God's Holy Spirit to pick up their Bibles and read it, to pray, to reach out to somebody, to ask for prayer, ask for help. Lord, would you change me and our music team and our tech team even here that has listened to me live? Oh God, don't let us 
just play church and turn off the live stream and just turn off this part of our Christianity. But may we be Holy Spirit filled, empowered people. In Jesus' name.